Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast. Excited that you're here and thank you. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to give you guys a quick couple words about our lovely sponsors who make this show possible. First, we have Metis Network. Right now, every layer two optimistic rollup uses a single sequencer to run their network. This creates a large security and decentralization risk. If that one sequencer goes down due to a malicious actor, seizure by outside authorities, or anything else, the results could be catastrophic. Soon, Metis will launch the first ever sequencer pool. By spreading sequencer duties across multiple parties, Metis will decentralize the most important function of a blockchain network, combine that with their network of block producers and validators, and Metis will become one of the first truly decentralized layer twos using a decentralized sequencer. These sequencers will be required to stake and lock a minimum of 20,000 Metis tokens, which effectively ensures that they will act with the network's best interest in mind. I'm pretty excited about this personally because during DevConnect, we listened to a lot of talks about decentralizing sequencers, and even Vitalik gave a talk about the roadmap to decentralized sequencers. The more that we can push this innovation forward, the more that we can push this ethos of decentralization forward, it makes the entire ecosystem better. So thank you, Metis, for supporting the rollup, and we look forward to seeing this come to fruition. Welcome back to the D5 by Design podcast. Here today, of course, with my boy Rob. Got my scroll shirt on. I think it's the best shirt that I caught at uh, DevCon. It's, uh, it's kind of like a, a custom fit. Uh, what do you think? Is it is it wearable on a date or not? Debatable. I, uh, I, I remember seeing the scroll shirt. I thought the quality was amazing. The only thing is the collar. It's like a real big collar. So I don't know. It's like a half turtleneck kind of thing on a t-shirt. It's different. It's unique. Good to see yeah. that handy. <laughs> Until you got Rushi, king of the oh, Zen. What's up, guys? Not too bad. Not too bad. I would probably not wear that shirt out um, in public unless it's a crypto conference. <laughs> um, maybe put a flannel over that. Uh, it does look like a turtleneck a little bit, so that is my issue. Um, but I love scroll, so uh, when it's a good show. We have the swag. We we will have the date. If, yeah, it'll be ones you can wear that date. I promise. That is the litmus test of crypto swag. Yes. And then we need a real movement party. That's a real party. Movement party at East Denver? You didn't hear from me. You didn't hear from me. Oh, man. So, Rusi, why don't you introduce yourself a bit about um, kind of movement? Obviously, you, uh, you have an interesting past in crypto, um, kind of different programming backgrounds. And um, yeah. yeah, so Movement Labs is building the first Move Layer 2 Ethereum powered by Celestia for DA. Um, our kind of background comes from the Appetest ecosystem. Um, my background personally is engineer to start off at like career systems, database security, got a health group, um, had to entering that space over there. Uh, then got into the crypto bug pretty early on on the engineering side, um, take around Solidity, Cosmos, and Rust in that space. Um, and then around like August of last year is kind of when I stumbled across the move. I was like Facebook, the biggest consumer app and social network in the world. Looked at the current system blockchains. I was like, this is awful. Um, we need a better VM. We need a better parallelization. We need better uh, all verification built into the VM um, so that we can actually build technology that can billions of users on Facebook could use. Um, it was like literally, I would say two years ago, I want to say that decision was made. Um, and then that was a DM project from Facebook. Um, for future regulation, it could never receive fruition and got split up into both Aptos and Tsui. Um, 
personally, I built the first Dex in Aptos. Uh, my co-founder built the first Yield Aggregate in Aptos. So um, we're some of the earliest builders in the space and recognize that um, there's a lot of issues that we couldn't directly handle uh, on the infrastructure side. And that was around the time when the modular thesis kind of picked up um, and realized the real market fit for a move VM to exist within the modular system. Um, so that's led us to build movement, the first move layer two on Ethereum. Um, how did you meet Coop? So, sorry, sorry, it's that thought. Yeah. It's like, where did that come in? I think we met at a conference. Um, me and Coop actually went to the same university. Um, he was a little bit older than me, but um, we're just like, you're playing after us and you go to um, the same university. It was a cool like jamming session. Um, we kind of worked together on like some move ideas. Uh, and like he built a yield aggregator. So naturally, like we were partners kind of. Um, but around like post FTX, um, that's kind of when we kind of linked up to decided to go all in on this. Very cool. And like I, on the on the note of like partnerships, like and also speaking about Andy's scroll shirt, like you guys have found a way to position yourself so that you're friends with essentially like potentially everyone in the industry. Yep. And that's like that's also like our thesis and our perspective on the industry. It's like if you can if you can come up with an innovative positioning where you you're able to like befriend everyone rather than compete with one another, yep. then you are probably building something valuable in the space. So like how how when, when you're looking at the space like as a whole maybe we'll use scroll as an example like how do you partner with someone like scroll and then how do you keep an open enough mind to partner with essentially like all these new tools and chains that are coming up you know on a daily basis i think when we looked at the modular thesis there was a, a clear market for da right you had like three big da layers and like now near gained a space you had a bunch of rast providers in space a bunch of like raw stacks. So you have like a Polygon SDK, you have the OP stack, you have CK stack. I don't think Scroll is a stack yet, but I'm sure they're coming out with it soon. Um, but there was a lot of competition, but everyone was saying like, we'll do all these customizations, but I'll leave the EVM as it is. Um, when most people recognize that the EVM was actually the biggest bottleneck, um, execution after data availability is the biggest bottleneck on Ethereum. A, from security side, there's $4 billion lost every hacker attacks. And B, on the throughput side, like, pretty much every EVM chain tops at 100 TPS, um, which if you're ever trying to get a consumer on chain, um, is pretty problematic. So that's kind of how we kind of have this unique edge in the market where everyone is our kind of friend because no one's like competing on the execution layer level. And even if you are, it's fuel, obviously, there's a salon of VM. And in that manner, it's not tribalistic at all because the overall market wants to dethrone the EVM. So even though there are other styles of virtual machines, you can argue whether the SVM is better than the fuel VM is better or the move VM better. Um, the real challenge is deep there in the EVM and generating mindshare um, for overarching virtual machines. Um, so the current state of the market is like everyone's kind of competing to race to the bottom, but the execution layers are where there's kind of innovation on that side. Um, and then kind of like how we partner with Scroll is, um, and these other like layer two frameworks is optimism obviously has opt of the chain and then they have the OP stack arbitrary orbit. Um, ZK Sync has ZK Stack. Um, so we can essentially bring the Move VM um, to these ecosystems. We have like a Move Stack where anyone can launch it on Move Rollup, use whatever stack they want, use whatever dealer they want, use whatever sequencer they want. We're not competing at that end. We just give them the VM. Uh, it's the first MEVM, so it's fully even compatible. Um, so works, talks, and looks like EVM, but has the Move VM running out of the hood. So it's a paralyzed Russian machine. You have formal verification built into the VM. So we stop like 90, 95% of all attack vectors. Uh, we're seeing slowly, which I'll get more into later, I'm sure. For anyone who's like unfamiliar, uh, 
does dethrone the EVM mean dethrone Ethereum? Or like after you take out the EVM, what else is left of Ethereum? Yeah, so like that's not at all what it means at all. Like Ethereum is still the best place to settle transactions. Um, by TVL, it like kind of takes up all of DeFi, if not pretty much everything. Like you have Ethereum and Solana with the recent rise. Um, but the Ethereum is not the EVM. In fact, uh, most people in the Ethereum space agree that EVM is a hot pile of garbage. Um, it's synthetic, slowly it's pretty broken. It can't scale. Um, but Ethereum itself is a great settlement layer. It's very decentralized, um, has a lot of TVL in mind, insurance and security, um, or it's like secure storage of value. Um, so the way we kind of look at it is bring this next-gen VM, bring the superior technology to where users are. Um, in the past with monolithic chains, you always had next-gen VMs. You always had like cool technologies, but it was really difficult to get adoption because everyone is still on Ethereum, despite whether you like it or not. Um, so modularity allows you to bring in experimentation so you can experiment on Ethereum without leaving Ethereum. Yeah. Um, even further um, down that kind of rabbit the hole when it comes to the VMs, what is a VM? What is a virtual machine? I think uh, like your computer as a virtual machine, it's like an operating system where like in traditional web two, you can write um, code and will compile down like every app you're using on your laptop Mac is connected to the Chromium or connected to the Mac OS. Um, so you can have like a Windows virtual machine, you can have like a Mac virtual machine. In blockchain specifically, it's how um, smart contracts can interface with underlying consensus mechanism. So like Ethereum consensus is not itself able to be accessed by a developer or user, but Ethereum virtual machine can be accessed. So you can think of like the Valor set, which is like a network and the virtual machine is on top of it that communicates a user or developer to the underlying settlement layer. Um, a great analogy is like Swift, for example, communicates between different banks, but the actual settlement layer um, is underneath that, uh, which is like the communication between banks and the financial system that exists today. Um, so Ethereum is just like a better financial system, but there's better ways to communicate with Ethereum than the EBM. Yeah, awesome. Just that, uh, wanted to throw that one out before we dive into the weeds here. Uh, um, because so I'm super curious as to as to why you believe that uh, alternative VMs have a place. Um, and let's just scrap EVM from our thought here. Let's let's look at a world of of just uh, well, are known as alternative VMs. But what are some of the benefits of some of these tech stacks that have been around for a while? Um, you know, what kind of capabilities could could uh, we expect or innovation possibilities? I suppose could be endless, but what kind of capabilities can we expect from um, non-DVM or just other DMs, um, you know, and why? Why Why do, is this happening? Why is the, why do these alternate DMs offer better capabilities than um, some of the rest of the Yeah, I'll break this down into two sections, uh, performance and security. I think performance inscriptions was a great example of what chains can scale, what chains can't. Um, we saw a lot, if not, Every EVM chain pretty much go down with the ride inscriptions. Um, some chains completely halted, while other chains had like extremely high gas fees. Although inscriptions in edge case, a lot of people didn't take account. It kind of highlights like in the world where you actually have a thousand, ten thousand users on chain at the same time, can the network handle it? And when you look at what networks handle it, it was Solana handled it pretty well. After us, we handled it pretty well. Um, I think Near and Say handled it pretty well. The common denominator there is like alternative VMs in the space where A, you have parallelization built into runtime. So instead of 
um, the EVM, which is single better processing, which you have to wait for a transaction to finish each time. You can have parallelization in that um, transaction can execute concurrently. Um, you have parallelized databases, um, like what Manad's working on, say is working on. Um, so just able to handle users on chain is a huge benefit for a performance point of view because you have parallelization. Um, specifically, Move has a block STM pattern, which was designed by the DM project. Um, it's a superior way to do um, parallelization and handle transaction threading. On the second part of performance, specific move is the concept of dynamic NFTs. Uh, we're seeing this in gaming, where Sweet Gaming has really taken off. Um, where in the past, let's say like DeFi Kingdoms, on chains they were on the past, they kind of broke the chains, if not halted the chains, because you're constantly minting and burning NFTs. So let's say, for example, a game actually gets a million users on chain. In that world, you have millions users on chain, you're going to have tens of millions of traits being minted and burned in because there's no way to swap out traits at will. With Move and this virtual machine that can take these opcodes, um, you can swap out traits at will. So let's say, for example, you kill a thousand zombies um, and you need to upgrade the caliber of the gun or upgrade the skin on like for your individual. You can do that within the smart contract itself instead of needing to um, constantly mint and burn a new NFT each time you update state. Um, that's on the performance side. So you have high throughput chains as well as customization on smart contracts, um, which enable um, low fee and better UX purposes. On security side, is kind of where Move takes the cake. It was built with formal verification in mind. For those who don't really get it, formal verification is kind of what auditors do. It's their job. They formally verify each line of code to make sure there's no bug there, there's no registry attack, there's no integer overflow. And even then, it's not 100%. Uh, we saw that recently with the Kyber attack, the Curve attack, which are two blue chip protocols, both reinstitute bugs. And every week, um, it seems like there's a new attack. The total number is like four and a half billion to date uh, every year lost in attacks. So if you're buying this thesis that crypto is going to be adopted at mass scale, um, it can't be done on a Solidity or EVM because it can't scale. Bank of America will never put their assets on the EVM because it just won't house the user funds safely. Even talking liquid funds, they can't get insurance to completely back their like kind of investment because there's a high smart contract risk. So Move introduces the concept of formal verification where every smart contract that's deployed goes through a formal check at runtime. So checks for resource type and memory safety, um, blocks for SG attacks, blocks flash loans, um, and some of the other major scale attacks we're seeing. So next-gen VMs are the fastest and most secure way to scale Ethereum. Gotcha. Uh, Rob, you go ahead because after this, I'd like to take a little bit of a uh, build your own module roll up. So get which opinion that's yeah, that's always a fun exercise. Um, I did have like a quick, uh, like a quick tangent, um, which is that you mentioned parallel parallelization as kind of the thing that enables high throughput chains. Um, I'm curious how parallelization, which is a very difficult word to say. How is that like similar or different from atomic composability? Um, and I'll just kind of like say my understanding of it. And then maybe you could like correct me where I'm wrong and then fill in any gaps. Yep. I heard Charles from Espresso speak about atomic composability, how it arrives at a more efficient prices much quicker. Um, and this is done by essentially putting transactions into the same sequencer and then any kind of like uh, coincidences that happen to use cow swaps term uh, cancel out and then those are able to uh, eliminate any kind of settlement uh, bloating if you will um, parallelization seems to be very similar because you can run transactions in parallel 
Um, if those transactions have coincidence of wants, is there a way to like let those settle uh, atomically, or is uh, transactions in parallel not necessarily uh, composable with one another? Yeah, so the best way to explain this is atomically composable refers to multiple different blockchains. So let's say you have like eight different rollups or 10 different rollups. Composability refers to like, can you do a swap between rollup A, rollup B, rollup C, rollup D, rollup F between different networks? Parallelization refers to state between one specific network, mostly refers to database. So it looks at read, read and write um, calls between a specific chain. So let's look at um, Solana, for example. Solana is not atomically composable with other chains because you need a wormhole, you need a third-party bridge to bridge assets between Solana and Ethereum. But Solana is paralyzed and can um, execute on state in a paralyzed runtime because um, you can have like a thousand transactions all occur at the same time, um, and it's composable within a specific network. So atomic composable refers to a multiple network, while parallelization refers to state within a specific chain. That makes sense. Um, is is parallelization is that the end all be all? This has been the the hot turn, but like, is it is it is it is it really that powerful? If so, like, is it just a matter of of like the local fee markets? Or I know say is different than Monad and yeah. than insert other here other PMs, but is it just local fee markets? Or is there other aspects that make parallelization uh, better other than just a cost or basically third what your ultimate compensation cost? Get more to see. Is it that just it, or is it more to it? Yeah, so parallelization itself doesn't do much. I would say it's like a 5x increase or 6x increase, which if you're doing 10 TPS, it brings you like 50 TPS. Um, the real adjustments and modifications um, that's in push is the DBE. So um, on the AppDOS and Sui side, they use like RocksDB, which is a modified version designed for the block STM um, pattern. Um, and there's also like how you integrate with some sensing mechanisms. Um, so parallelization is just one piece of the pie. It refers more to parallelized like consensus, parallelized database. Um, parallelization as a whole is like a system. Um, parallelization of VM itself, it's just one small, small piece, um, which isn't that difficult to do. It just refers to having multiple threads within which machine. Um, the real bottleneck is on the database, um, which Monad specifically focuses on, and that's why um, they're able to do like a parallelized EVM. Um, the way we look at it is we kind of inherit a lot of the benefits of AppDust and the DM virtual machine. Um, so we have our own modified version of RocksDB, um, which can handle the high throughput um, and can have all the benefits that Monad DB does. So it's like equivalent. We handle EVM equivalency through EVM runtime, uh, while Monad and Say kind of build it directly into the VM. Um, so it's kind of two different implementations. I got one more question before we go into the build your own modular rollup exercise. And this is a question I got from a programmer, a friend of mine, a couple of days ago at a bar. And he was asking me like first principles of, of blockchain. He's a very smart guy, but I think he was actually testing like why blockchain even exists. And you mentioned database and like from a programmer's perspective, like first off, like how is a blockchain because, okay. But how is a blockchain different from these databases? Like you mentioned that databases are baked into some of these chains, like, yep. How is a chain different from a database? And then why is that like that on-chain component important and necessary? Yeah, so databases store more local memory. So they store like read and write calls, uh, specific transaction. Um, the actual like, transaction history is to the call data, um, which is stored directly to like Celestia or like Ethereum mainnet. 
So the kind of differentiator is like you can use an Excel spreadsheet instead of Celestia um, for like DA, but it's very extensive to make read and write requests. It's very slow. It's inefficient. It's not designed for financial applications. Blockchains, from a financial point of view, is the best distributed ledger in that you can send money, send transactions um, at the speed of light, essentially, in certain networks, um, and do so in a manner that's open source. Um, you can trace history of it. Um, there's no like bottleneck in terms of how many transactions you can do. Like in, in theory, Ethereum can go on for decades, um, and it's not like a centralized server like Google is running or Amazon's running. Um, and I think like, it's, the database is a very small uh, part of it. So you, not only do you have like a database, but you also have Ethereum has like thousands of validators. Like Solana has thousands of validators. You have a better DA layer that can um, handle like sampling in a way that Excel like, spreadsheet couldn't. Um, so let, let, long story answer here is a database is like a short-term solution while blockchain is the best way to do um, payment or store um, data on chain um, as quickly as possible well um so tech technical understandings there which is which is always good coming back to rob's first any second question which is this idea of being friends with all these different potential partners for you so before we start building a modular rollup what i'd like to do is just understand things. Um, so I guess first, can the little VM be uh, integrated with every RAS provider? Yep, we can be integrated to pretty much every RAS provider. We designed the VM to be completely modular. Um, we first bring it to Avalanche, uh, which was M1, which I'll get more to more about later, um, and then brought it to the Ethereum rollup. Um, so we designed it so it can be picked up and brought by any RAS, by any dealer. Um, we have partnerships with all the biggest dealers and we're announcing um, some pretty good role of staff providers as well. So it doesn't matter if it's a like CK roll up, up to it, it's whatever it is. It, 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 there. Yep. Yep. You just have to like kind of build a that like support for it. So you have to build like, like clients or you need to build out like the RPCs, um, but it's not a too difficult process. And same with DA, of course. Uh, and then what about settlement layer? Could, could, could we have new roll ups settled to Solana? Avalanche yep. should tell mirror to Bitcoin. Yep, I've seen I actually see a move Bitcoin implementation recently. Um, so yeah, any settlement layer works. Uh, I would actually be interested to see I can move up on Bitcoin because that could be good for security point of view, but um, haven't seen much work been done there. Um, but yeah, any settlement layer works. Okay, cool. So Let's just assume that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a game developer and I'm set on using the app. Uh, yep. Neutrally, right? Assuming you are, you have no private interests in anything other than just building with best environments. What, uh, how are you building a modular role for games? Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premia Finance. Premia is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premia, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Feel free to check it out at premium.finance. 
hedge your risks or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital efficient returns on previous findings. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plana Finance. I've recently been onboarded as an advisor for Plana Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plana Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless user-friendly experience. Plana Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Plana Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Planet Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. I think the first thing that's more important is that you build a good game first, uh, like build up community, like build up the actual game before you worry about what block hits on. Uh, so that's where I'd start. And then once you have that game and the ecosystem and now you're ready to use blockchain uh, and you want to use move, which we would encourage for gaming, um, you probably want to use Ethereum for settlements, um, it's the best storage of value at the moment. Um, and you can have liquidity for your NFT marketplaces and actually have users on chain. Um, on the DA side, it's kind of where it gets more interesting um, because Celestia is obviously the only one that's live right now. You have a seven year DA, which in theory is cheaper. Um, and then you'll have like IG and DA coming out. Um, I think IG and DA is particularly interesting because in theory, it can handle like one gigabyte per second, um, which is more designed for high throughput virtual machines. So we're doing a lot of benchmarking internally on comparing Celestia versus the Eigen DA implementation versus an available implementation. Um, and it seems like if Eigen DA can hit the benchmarks, um, it's proposing to be a great candidate for gaming applications. Um, and you also get the security from native meat that is not a different consistent mechanism. On the rollup stack side, I think a ZK rollup would be the best because you want instant withdrawal times. You don't want to wait a um, long time. Um, so that kind of like narrows it down to like Poly CDK, um, Sovereign SDK, um, and I'm sure like a few other ZK stacks. So a bet on the yeah would theoretically be a bet on somebody to build a great game, for example, and thus to put it onto the VM or build it with Moodgib under it as as the VM layer, which would then accrue a ton of value to basically yeah, this, the idea of the technology behind VM like 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 from your perspective, you should be incentivizing and encouraging as many builders to build great shit on yeah. Yep. So gaming is one aspect I think we're focused mainly on DeFi right now. Um, because in order to have a successful chain, you need liquidity on chain, you need users like kind of detailing out. Um, so we built our core DeFi system, which we're announcing like every day basically. And gaming is a huge focus. I think one of the benefits that we have is that we have like two giants behind our shoulders um, that both have substantial amount of capital. Um, and uh, both these systems are pouring a lot of money into gaming, specifically in Southeast Asia, Korea. Um, Sui is doing a great job and Apple is doing a great job uh, of reaching Korea adoption. Um, and fortunately, we get the benefit of like those fruits where uh, we work pretty closely with like systems. Um, it's generally pretty friendly um, and we can kind of work together and move adoption. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked this, this one on the base, on the back of that one, specifically for move, it's interesting that Apple's and Sweet are obviously evolved at that at that level, but it's quite a nice uh, advantage. But with regards to um, 
value accrual in the modular staff. Like, how are you thinking about, uh, like, obviously, Celestia's price number go up, right? But, like, how are you thinking about, like, I send a transaction onto this modular rope that we just built out on this game. Like, yep. each part of the stack is somehow accruing some sort of value, which also then theoretically gets back to the user as they're getting a better experience, better lower fees, better UX. But, like, like what else? What what are we missing? Like, is the value for the modular stack? What's the business model for the modular stack in for pieces? Like, how are we thinking about like comparatively valuing these things? Um, yes. So, like, the business model for like traditional of the arbitrary optimism has always been a sequence level. So, you charge sequencer fees to the EVM, um, and that's to make money. It's a pretty decent business model, like the printing money essentially. Um, but the problem there is when you now you choose next gen VMs and the thesis is low fees. So with the Solana VM, with the Move VM, you have low fees because you have paralyzed run times, you have a localized fee markets. Um, so the fees are actually pretty much next to zero, which means the sequence of fees are pretty much nothing. Um, so the value proposal actually goes away for next-gen VMs in the modern thesis. Um, a, as DA becomes more cheaper, um, sequence of fees actually get progressively lower. Um, so less, you can look at like Mantis fees, um, their sequence of fees went down a lot in a good way because it's a better user experience for users. You're not paying $5 for transactions, but the business model slowly diminishes. What's kind of my thesis and how we're positioning is the value actually occurs to token at a sequence level. So for context, um, we have M1, which is um, kind of layer one, both on the tsunami consensus. That turns into a decentralized sequencer or decentralized shared sequencer to power their Ethereum rollup. Um, so what that means is uh, if I'm a validator, I can now stake our native token to participate in sequencing um, and actually get a percentage of the fees. So yeah, even in this world where next-gen VMs dominate um, on Ethereum, which is the fees behind movement, and the sequence of fees are pretty low, those fees get distributed to all the validators. And it's actually a value cool mechanism back to the token because validators need to stake the native token to participate in sequencing. And you actually can make the decentralized sequencer permissionless eventually. Um, so long story short is the decentralized sequencer is how I see the market trending over the next two years as sequencer fees diminish is actually economic incentive for arbitrum optimism develops to transition to a decentralized sequencer because now you can require the native token to be staked to, to participate in sequencing. So uh, Steven didn't want to tell us that, Rob. <laughs> no, I didn't. He said it was a research task or problem. He, we, were at, we were grilling S Steven on, uh, on arbitrum staking. Yeah. And he said, you know, we were, we were asking him like when, when ARB staking and I, my hypothesis at the time was that ARB staking, if it were to occur, it wouldn't occur at the protocol level. It would occur above the protocol level at maybe the application level. And that wouldn't be a concern of Ar the Arbitrum DAO yep. or off-chain labs. But what you're saying is that as sequencer fees uh, are driven to zero, then Arbitrum staking actually would occur at the protocol level and Arbitrum would transition into this uh, proof of stake sequencer model, if you will. Yeah, I think Arbitrum is a educated, like Arbitrum optimism is obviously very successful. Um, it would need to take a lot for them to move it. And I don't think it's on the roadmap. I think of other priorities like EVM++ um, and they're doing a good job in that end. I think this more applies for next-gen VMs. Like we're talking about the fuels of the world, the moves of the world. SVMs of the world that bring the next gen one time to Ethereum, or the fees are like zero, basically. So arbitrary fees will always have fees with this EVM, um, and the next two years they'll probably have fees, so they don't have much of an incentive to use decentralized sequencers. 
while MoveVM, SVM, they have low fees. So it's more imperative that we use a decentralized sequence or staking model or have like a staking hub. So we actually have business um, for our company. Okay, I got one more one more question on the Arbitrum, uh, the Arbitrum framework specifically. Yeah. Because you were on a panel in New York and yeah. I think I texted you after the panel and I was like, hey, uh, Arbitrum actually has this announcement with Espresso that they're yeah. going to use some shared sequencer at some time. And your response was basically like, that's never going to happen. So could you like just explain that a little bit more as far as like why Arbitrum would, would not make that transition to a shared sequencer? You're going to get me in trouble. You're going to get me in trouble. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like, it's, it's about economic incentives, right? Um, Arbitrum's printing money, basis printing money. Like there's no economic incentive for them to use a decentralized sequencer in the short term term. Um, which is the frame of reference in a in a twenty year landscape, thirty year landscape? Sure, like I buy a centralized sequencers for plot, decentralized sequencers and shared sequencers will dominate the EVM market as well as next gen VM markets. But the fact of the matter is today is that it's so profitable to run a centralized sequencer in the near to short term or short to mid term, it doesn't make sense for Arbitrum Optimism or any EVM chain really to use a decentralized sequencer. It does make a lot of sense for next gen VMs that are prioritizing low fee markets to use share sequencers because you have business models baked into it um, because you have token staking. Um, and it's also like you need a share sequencer usually to handle the parallelization and the high proof benefits. Um, you can't rely on a single point of failure. Um, so my thesis is that Arbitrum and Optimism, even if they advertise it, I think that was in reference to Arbitrum Orbit or it's probably like some kind of roadmap things. We're probably not going to see that adopted Arbitrum mainnet for a very, very long time. I hope the specific doesn't kill me at this. That's our next yeah. podcast, so we'll we'll make sure uh yeah. the rest from them too. <laughs> so back to the back to the the where we got going on this, which is really good, is that value accrual. So 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 let's just get our facts straight. So is DA the this rise of alt DA is this causing a race to the bottom for sequencer fees? Is that kind of what's happening? Is this gonna yeah if you need what you all sequencer fees? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it already on like Twitter. Right? So like, you see like, Nier competing with Celestia on sequence on like um, the DAP. So right now, Nier is exponentially cheaper um, than Celestia for DA, even though like Celestia can customize it and decrease if they want to, but they're not choosing to. Um, so in this like two-year or three-year horizon where you have four live DA layers, A, they're all going to compete for these big role brands to deploy on top of them. So they'll change their fee models at to like attract um, more users and then B it's going to be like okay if Celestia decreases their fees how does Eigendia respond if Eigendia responds how does Avail respond so it's going to be this kind of like jockeying between different dealers I'm sure there's like five of the dealers in the pipeline ready to launch um, and I've heard of a few um, so in this world where it's like DA is all decreasing their costs now you're like okay what happens to the sequence of fees if a transaction like let's say it was a $10 to a transaction at the maintenance Celestia makes that two dollars because of their great DA sampling, and then it's a progressively lower fee structure. Now the amount of cost per transaction is going from two dollars to dollar fifty to dollar. Um, it probably hits a lower balance somewhere, uh, which makes the sequence of fees, which are a percentage of that dollar, um, exponentially less important. Um, so you kind of it's kind of a race to the bottom of the DA level as well as like the RAS level as well, um, which kind of renders the sequencer fees um, long term a race to the bottom as well. And also centralized sequencers aren't the best as we've seen um, with downtime issues and whatnot. Okay. And then, so 
with the alternative BM thesis, how is this similar to the TA situation? And, and how is this different? I understand the value level with the token and the stake for sequencing aspect. So you know, maybe if you can tie that into the, how is the race to the bottom of TA costs similar or different? And how is that affecting the way you're thinking about yeah, the whole thesis behind next gen VMs, and if you go on like Slot or Optus and Suite, the fees are literally like zero point zero 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 one. Um, the thesis behind next gen VMs is localized fee markets um, for like consistent fee structures, parallel execution, so there's no bottleneck and throughput. Um, so you don't have crowded fee markets. A great example is like during high peaks of like on use of Arbitrum, GMX goes crazy, which drives Arbitrum gas fees go crazy, and a sequencer prints. That doesn't happen in Move or SVM because um, if there's an app that goes crazy, it's the VM itself can handle the state bloat. Um, so it doesn't pass it on um, to the fee markets. It just stays very cheap. So you always have consistent, like next to nothing fee, um, which means the sequence itself is pretty unprofitable of a centralized sequencer. Um, so I wouldn't say the VM space is at a race to the bottom. It's, it's probably going to compete on like devs. Uh, it's going to compete on like security, on like speed. Um, that's for the competition. There's not a race to the bottom because like move, SVM fuel, they all are like pretty much next to nothing gas fees. The token incentive model for the sequencer is kind of how you actually have business model and value approval back to the token. Because traditional layer two tokens are just governance models, um, not really any staking or gas fees. Um, so we'll see a lot more exper experimentation coming there. I think StarkNet is doing something interesting where they have like Stark tokens, gas fees, um, and they have some kind of share sequencing club. Not too familiar with it, but um, heard a lot of great things. Yeah, they got in trouble. Or uh, not being a fear aligned, apparently, which is uh, kind of an interesting one because they're very theory aligned. I think what they were like through this out in CJ roll up stack that allows them to have Cairo VM, which is actually a sleeper alt VM that nobody talks about for some reason. No. Maybe they're not like super involved in the blockchain conversation, but I think Stark and Theory do well. Um, thank you for, for answering that. I'd like to take some time to dive into the, the move framework. Um, that you guys are doing with Cosmos and IBC, some of the roadmap items. So maybe just take us away as, as you see fit and we'll uh, kind of jump in as we have questions. Yeah, I think the thesis of what we want to build is always commissionless interoperability. Like I was building on Aptos, building on Suite, um, and like I wanted to try new bridges, I wanted to try new oracles, um, but I couldn't do that in like a monolithic environment. So with M2 and the Move stack, um, we kind of have enabled anyone to like customize their own infrastructure. So for example, we built the first Move Hyperplane module so anyone, let's say you're on Menta, you're on Eclipse, you connect to M2, which is an Ethereum rollup, or connect to any move rollups um, pre-permissionlessly. You don't need like a third-party bridge to do integration for you. You can do it um, in under an hour probably. Um, and the second thing is IBC. I think Cosmos is something that has been slept on for a while. Um, it's kind of the app chain thesis and the hub has kind of discontinued it. Uh, but now with Celestia, it's brought like a new vigor to the ecosystem. Um, and with that, I believe that IBC is one of the most powerful technologies in the space, um, connecting not only to the Cosmos Hub, but as well as players like Noble, which bring USDC on-chain. So we're announcing the first uh, Move IBC module that connects um, the broader movie system to the Cosmos system. Um, so we'll be powered by Union, um, who will be building out um, the IBC compatibility for which machine, um, which allows us, A, to be fully compatible with the Cosmos system, B, um, have Noble's USDC on-chain um, on testnet and mainnet, and C can be compatible with like, players like Stry, which is liquid staking, um, Kepler, Leap, and some of all like, the fun Cosmos stuff um, that we've grown to love. Okay, so you guys have 
like the M1, M2, maybe we can get get to that kind of like separation in a moment. Um, as we talk about the move framework, um, I think we briefly touched on this earlier. We already kind of like unbundled the entire roll-up stack and and this leads us to modularity. So when it, you know, once we accept like the the promise of like alternative VMs and what they do to roll up throughput, why did you guys choose the move language specifically? Like what what is it about move that separates and empowers greater throughput, more security than, you know, some of the other like options for VMs that you guys could have chosen? I mean, it goes back to Facebook stands, right? Facebook was going to build a stable coin to power their billing users on Facebook. And they looked at the EVM and was like, okay, if I have a billion users with like tens of billions of dollars and it's living in this EVM, it's going to get hacked inevitably. So they took a step back, built a complete VM and language from scratch. It was Rust-based language. Um, so Move was built like with all the security in mind to handle a Facebook-style app on-chain. Um, so let's think of it like the Solana virtual machine and your favorite auditor combined into one VM. Um, so the concept of formal verification is baked into the virtual machine. So you have built-in bytecode verifier and compiler. So traditionally, in a smart contract, when you execute a smart contract, there's no one saying, like, stopping it if it's a flawed line. So, for example, the re-energy attacks are a huge thing. The Kyber attack was, like, attack vector where 0.00001% probability of being picked up, which means it's just human error and fundamentally impossible for anyone to, like, pick up on it. Um, that would have been completely stopped by move because the move runtime would have flagged it as, like, hey, there's a re bug here. Um, we don't allow re uh, we in a virtual machine, flag your compile time and don't execute it. Um, so it kind of audits the code in real time because you have more verification built into the VM. In the EVM and other virtual machines, you have to go to auditor each time you want to update your code, um, which can work the first time, it can work the second time, but the 73rd time when you have a 73rd update, maybe there's a line that you missed, which just cost you $10 million um, and just lost your entire user base. I think Stars Arena is a great example. It was a social buy app on Avalanche. Um, it was a good, good team just wanted to push a product mainnet, um, and they got extreme traction in three days and then realistically bug crippled them and now they're nothing, right? Um, and they're trying to work on it again. But the point is the lux the, the velocity of production in crypto is very slow in that if I have a killer idea, if I want to build the next Facebook in my dorm, it takes me a really long time. I need to build the code out, spend months auditing it, pay hundred K to my favorite auditor. And even that is a good chance to get me hacked. I think the number is like 90% of every EVM protocol is at risk of being attacked right now. Like Lido is pretty much the, the edge case, but even that's like unsure. So Move is designed to increase the velocity of production. You can deploy code mainnet. 95% of all bugs are pretty much handled. Um, and we haven't knocked on wood seen an attack yet. Uh, we'll see how the thesis plays out over the next few years, but um, Move was built with security in mind. Yep. Totally makes sense. There's... You know, there's sev several projects out there building alternative VMs. Um, makes total sense why you guys are are embedding formal verification into the alternative VM logic. That'll hopefully uh, increase the velocity of of development um, and speed up like how quickly these projects can go to market and deploy on mainnet. Which kind of brings me back to a thought I had a little bit earlier in this conversation, uh, which was that by uh, enabling uh like essentially modularity by enabling modularity and also kind of like bringing all these things together you're able to open up like this design space for for developers that maybe aren't blockchain native so all they have to do like because because all of the on-chain work is becoming much much easier 
it means that a lot of the work is now going off chain and that's where the innovation is going to happen. And that means that not blockchain, uh, like non-natives are able to come in and develop because now a lot of that, a lot of that creative work is happening off chain. And that that's because on chain work is becoming much, much easier. Yeah. I think they have like a bunch of customizations. Um, like if I want to build a game like touched on and I want a paralyzed runtime in the past, I couldn't just like fork Solana. Right. Uh, but now I can go to my credit rest, go want to grow up. And now I have a move up for my own use case. Um, which wasn't possible a year ago. Um, so you have much more experimentation in the space. I do think modularity introduces more like, complexities, but it's going to be like an unraveling of technology and then like, kind of coupling uh, once like, the winners are chosen. Yeah, that's what we see almost every cycle is like everything kind of like unravels. And yeah. then there's like, there's the bundlers and the unbundlers, depending on yeah. whether or not you want customization or you want convenience. Uh, and these are trends that we see in like several industries almost every cycle as things kind of dilate and compress and, and we see those trends. And Rob, you bring up a really good point about the onboarding of developers. I think, um, I think that's one of the biggest, you know, unique uh, aspects of movement in alternative PMs. Risha, I'd love to hear more about how that's going for you guys. Um, and then we can dive back into like the M1 and M2 and kind of what's, what, what's, what our kind of community and users can expect. But let's touch on how alternative VMs are onboarding um, devs, um, you know, moves, fluent, other other VMs. Kind of, what's the overall thought process there? Why is it easier? What's your thoughts on onboarding devs? How are you doing it? I think our thesis is more about like eclipsing the Solana thesis, where we have like these two huge monolithic environments behind us, like Optimus Suite combined, like fifteen billion dollar network. Um, it's like a number six developer count. Move is growing exponentially in Korea, Southeast Asia, Taiwan. Um, and the bet is, okay, over the next three or four years, we're going to see a lot of move development because of the firepower of these two chains. Um, a lot of users are going to want to live on Ethereum still, live on Celestia, be part of the modern thesis, uh, be um, compatible, all these different benefits that you couldn't get on monolithic chains. So that's how we kind of work with Aptos and Sui in that we're extending the umbrella of move to environments that were typically untouched. Um, and similarly, Clips had extending the umbrella of SVM to Ethereum and whatnot. Fluent is like a interesting play because they're bringing in new developers to the space. They're bringing JavaScript developers, TypeScript developers, um, are doing a good job of kind of increasing the programming language horizon. We're focused more on like A, inheriting the work that two big giants have done, and then B, kind of focusing on increasing security mindshare within the Ethereum system. Um, so converting Rust developers to Move developers, um, as well as Move is a pretty easy language to pick up. It's like, I like to say like Move is to Rust as React is to JavaScript. Um, so it's much more intuitive, um, as design specific use case. So we do a lot of university hackathons and, um, have been seeing a lot of good trajectory there. Nice. Yeah. Developing, uh, developer experience is huge. Developer relationships is huge and love to see you guys go on the university route. Um, that's where like a lot of crypto curious people are. Um, and it seems like that's where the alt VM thesis fits, uh, is to onboard these like crypto curious people that aren't necessarily natives. Um, yep. So I want to I want to push into this M1 M2 conversation. Uh, kind of like unpack these things for us, un unbundle them. What is M1? What is M2? And why did you decide to kind of like separate these two pieces of the stack? Yeah, so this comes into like November of last year um, when we first started thinking about modularity. At the time, like this is post FEX and everyone was like down bad. 
like every developer in the space kind of left pretty much, especially with the movie system. Um, at the time, there's only tweak systems where you can build a Rust-based VM. Um, it, it was like Polkadot, Cosmos, and Avalanche. Um, and then we just Avalanche. It was a great time. And we kind of like really realized this is where we wanted to bootstrap liquidity and create a decentralized Valor set. Um, and then kind of got in the larger space where it made sense to like launch move ETH L2. And then as we kind of established roadmap, we realized like all the sequence stuff we discussed, right? In this world, we have next-gen VMs um, coming to Ethereum. It's very difficult um, to have centralized sequencers because the fees are going to be next to nothing. Um, centralized sequencers have large down times. So if we're doing 10,000 transactions per second, um, which is different than the EVM um, in these cases, it, the sequencer won't be able to handle that because it's a one node essentially sequencing all these transactions. So we need a decentralized sequencer that can scale. And specifically, we need a, a sequencer that had low hardware requirements, instant finality, so handle the essential um, throughput that we're having, and see so you have native um, alternative token staking. So that pretty much brings us down to like Tendermint and Stonemaker consensus. Um, and Stonemaker consensus was the right place to do. So M1 is a subnet on the average consensus. We don't say the word subnet, so we saw L1. Um, and M2 is the DM rollup that used to move a machine. M1 um, then transitions into M2 by being a decentralized sequencer. So um, every transaction that occurs at M2 mainnet um, is sequenced by the validator as part of M1. So it's a decentralized sequencer powering the theorem rollup. Um, so it's kind of a one mega Frankenstein experiment. Um, and if it works, it's going to be like probably the most decentralized and highest uptime next shed rollup on Ethereum. And kind of visual is like you have the movie for execution that's even compatible, you have Ethereum for settlement, you have M1 for sequencing, um, and then you have Celestia for DA. Then anybody can build a top. So, so M1 is is like sequencing. So it's not like the, like the settlement layer. You can't build a movement rollup with M1 as a settlement layer. So you can launch your own move rollup with move stack, which means you can connect to whatever rollup framework, you can use UK stack, OP stack, whatever, use whatever dealer, and you connect to M1 as a shared sequencer. So let's say you have M2, which is the main chain, and you want to launch your own gaming rollup. You can launch your own gaming rollup with the move stack, using move VM, use whatever other parts you want, use whatever RAS, connect to the decentralized sequencer. So you have composability that we touched on. Um, so if you're doing a swap between M2 and you have your own order book chain, um, it's atomic composability between different rollups. It's actually more atomically composable because it's a parallelized chain um, and you're not waiting for a state to finish on each different chain. Um, but yes, if you're launching a move rollup, you can connect for sequencing purposes, but it wouldn't be for settlement purposes. Um, you'd probably still sell on Ethereum. Yeah. And then interop is the other part of launching stack that is under-discussed. Soon be discussed more as people are getting involved. You mentioned something to do with the chads over at Junior for IBC uh, moves uh, to interop. Uh, could you take us, take us a little bit deeper as to what that looks like, as well as see the other uh, interesting items that you subtly hinted at today right before our lovely podcast. Yeah, on the IBC side, um, the moving system has never been IBC compatible, really. Um, so we're really looking to bring a, the app dust and sweet apps, um, bring them to the cosmic atmosphere. So let's say, for example, your decks and app dust. Now you can use osmosis assets. You have stake here into your decks, uh, which A, gives you a lot more volume and a lot more users. Um, building the first DEX in Aptos was pretty painful in that there was like two assets on chain, which was APT and like one other token that had next to no users. Um, this was after FGX app, of course. Um, and then as that scaled, we're like, okay, the bottleneck for new chains and monolithic environments is very difficult to bootstrap liquidity and bootstrap assets that users want. So with monolithic uh, modular chains, 
um, and obviously enable it. Now, if you want to move decks, you can have your move assets and whatever you want in that ecosystem. But now you can have IBC assets natively. You can have USDC via Noble natively. Um, you can have R and off brands from Kata natively. Um, and then we're like, you have native ETH because you live on Ethereum. Um, so that's kind of the thesis, like having permissions and interoperability. You can customize your oracles with the move stack. You can customize whatever bridging solutions you want, customize whatever roll up stack. Um, and as for roadmap, where we're at today, we have DevNet fully live. You can check out Docs that move with Labs XYZ. We have incentivized test bag coming up next month. Um, and then mainnet shortly after that. Um, and then we'll be rewarding community members. If you know what I mean? Yes, we do know what you mean, Rushi. Rewarding community members, indeed. Very hint, hint. With memes, of course. With memes. With memes. Community members. I have a budgie penguin. That makes me. I like being a budgie penguin. We get a lot of. No comment. No comment. Wow. Well, Rushi, thank you so much for uh, coming on and. Uh, Having a good good vibe, putting up with this pandemic Wi-Fi, I think the point uh, quite nice. Covered up a lot here, um, and it's just exciting. I think Rob's comment at the very beginning just set the tone, and it just continues to set the tone of the modular vision, the modular idea, where it's just like not everybody just can be friends, but it's all just this composability and this kind of like interactive nature, just building things together opening your mind to what's possible and reducing this maximalistic monolithic mindset. And I, I'm super happy to continue to see how movie uh, plays the part in that and look forward to, uh, to the launch. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks guys for having me on. And if you have East Denver movement, we around. The rope will be around. Um, feel free to say hi. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for coming on, Rishi. This was a blast. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.